Hello and welcome to the What Are We Even Doing Here podcast, a podcast that seeks to answer the question of what are we even doing here from a biblical perspective. We are part of the Christian Podcast Community. You can check out this and many other great podcasts at christianpodcastcommunity.org. My name is Daryl and the Word of God says from 1 Kings 16 starting in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty-two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for a wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar to Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation and the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Zagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And this is the word of God. Now I read that because today I have a special episode. I am not going to talk to you very long. I'm going to have my friend, my brother in Christ, who was on an episode a few weeks ago, Mark Big Papa Pump Popovich, as I like to call him, who is an umpire. We learned he is an actor. Um, he's a baseball fan. But anyway, he's a great brother in Christ. He also preaches the word of God. He, he does pulpit supply. So what I'm going to do in this episode is share a sermon that he preached on that very passage. And it, it blessed my life. I hope it blesses you as you listened to Mark Popovich preach. And if you could, find him on Twitter and thank him for this message. If it, if it blesses you, I, I found it very encouraging, especially in, in these times that we're in and what's going on in the world. And I don't want to give it a, too much away of what he says, but it's it's very, um, very, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, encouraging in these in these times that we, we are in. So thank you, Mark, for allowing me to put this sermon on this podcast, and I will do more in the future with that. So thank you, and also um, continue to listen to all the podcasts in the Christian Podcast community. I'd like to thank, real quick, a few people uh, who have contributed to my tuition funds for seminary at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, so thank you all who are contributing. And if you would like to help, and, and you haven't yet, and you had the opportunity, of course, always give to Carry Your Family First give to your church. And then if you have anything left over, I don't have a Patreon or any of that, but this is something that can help me and hopefully help me continue to do the podcast as well. I will have a link at the bottom of the show notes that you can just click on and it takes you right there and you're able to 
to contribute. So thank you again. Thank you, Mark. And I'll just sign off now. And then, but continue to listen because there's there's a sermon right after right after I'm done. So uh, I pray you continue to seek the kingdom of God. Find out what we are even doing here. Grace and peace, and as always, drive safe, Grady. The recent string of attacks and vandalism on crisis pregnancy centers across the nation, as well as the assassination attempt of a sitting conservative Supreme Court justice and the protests outside of other sitting conservative Supreme Court justices. These events tell us the welcome Christians have in 21st century American culture. It is a scary time to be living as a Christian in America. I am still fairly young, but I am old enough to remember a time when one's faith was at least, what's the word, tolerated in the public sector. Now it is being forced out of academia, forced out of politics, forced out of public conversation altogether. And if that weren't bad enough, our recent pandemic, the rise of homeschooling and parents taking an interest in what their children are being taught in public schools, shows us that Christianity isn't even welcomed in this culture in the private sector either. Christians are accused of indoctrinating their children with the gospel of Jesus Christ, as if that were a bad thing. The pressure in society, whether it's on social media, whether it's in the schools, or maybe even in your own workplace, the pressure to even this month wear certain colors to ally yourself with a certain group this sixth month of the year. If you are not going to do so, you are a bigot. You are accused of hate speech, of triggering others, even violence for the very beliefs you hold in your heart. They come for our jobs. They come for our children. This type of pressure is enough to make any Christian shrink back and silence their convictions in public, maybe even in private. And we always come to a point where we say things can't possibly get worse than this. But if we take Romans 1 seriously, which was just read for us, I believe things will probably, inevitably, get worse before they ultimately are victorious in Christ. And we come to a passage like 1 Kings 16, and we read of Ahab's reign, and we can identify with many of the details, many of the points, many of the the, the cultural winds coursing through this passage. We can see America, we can see our own culture, the westernized Uh, 21st century way of thinking on this very page. And we can say, yes, I, I can identify here. I see 
where those winds are picking up in my own day. And we can say, ah, but what hope is there? Those who are in power are making it difficult for those who would desire to walk in righteousness. And you know what? That is exactly what the Bible has told us to expect. Those who desire to live a life of righteousness in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. It is ramping up in our own day and age. But we come to a passage such as 1 Kings 16 and there is plenty of hope. There is plenty of grace to be found here. Because the life of Elijah as a whole, if you were to continue through and read of Elijah's life, we see the faithfulness of God in coming to the aid of His people, rescuing us from dire circumstances, from the hand of our enemy. And so in this passage alone, I want to point out two bits of grace for us in our own day and age, an age that is not unlike Elijah's during the reign of Ahab. First, I want you to see a lens. And then secondly, I offer you a seed. A lens and a seed. First, the lens. It's more of an admonishment to choose your lens carefully. I can imagine a news agency from Ahab's day, whether state-controlled or not, spinning the monarch's reign in a positive light. Now, I was an English major in college. I had a creative writing focus. I did a little bit of journalism, not much. But this, this is my impression of what the talking heads or the newspapers of Ahab's day might say in regards to uh, his reign. In light of turmoil and assassinations that the nation of Israel has seen over the years, the longevity of a 22-year reign for King Ahab is a refreshing span of stability to this tumultuous region. Likewise, the king's marriage to Jezebel and the alliance between the two nations is of an economic and political advantage since there is a promotion of peace, as well as the potential for trade in and through coastal port cities. And what a stroke of military genius and strategy the king exhibited by commissioning the reclamation project at Jericho. Though it was mixed with personal heartache, the resiliency and determination of the king and his contractor, Hael, epitomizes the, unco- the unconquerable spirit of all Israel. Samaria strong in the days ahead. That is not how Ahab's biographer sums up the raw data of the king's resume here. He leaves it to no question, as I said before. Succinctly put, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord. And in fact, the king's resume features two sobering critiques, unique to his reign, that are given to catch our attention. First, we are told, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. You remember Jeroboam, right? He was the first king after, the, the, uh, after Israel divided into the north and the south. 
And it was probably pragmatic, more out of fear that Jeroboam said, I'm going to set up these two golden calves for my people to worship at. So that way they don't have to go down to Jerusalem. It's pragmatic, right? It's convenient for them. But really he was doing that so that way his people wouldn't go down to Judah, down to Jerusalem, and be tempted to rejoin the southern kingdom and leave Jeroboam high and dry. He was breaking the second commandments and erecting these golden calves for the people to worship. But Ahab comes along and he hears of these sins of Jeroboam. And he says, you know what? To use a a phrase that Gen Z will understand, hold my beer. Or as you, you boomers might understand, you ain't seen nothing yet. You want sins? I'll give you sins. Watch this. Sin in all its forms is grievous. But the scriptures tell us that it is a particular, it is especially grievous when we make light of sin, whether our own or another's. When we call evil good and good evil as the prophet Isaiah denounces. Matthew Henry comments here, making light of lesser sins makes way for greater. And those who endeavor to extenuate other people's sins will but aggravate their own. That is exactly what Ahab does here because that second sobering critique, we are told that Ahab does more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is not a contest you want to finish in first place. And yet, here he is, Ahab, the son of Omri, who was himself an evil, wicked king, but his son outpaces him. Notice the structure here. It's a light thing for Ahab to walk in Jeroboam's sin. So what does he do? Well, we're told that he marries Jezebel, the daughter of a foreign king, something strictly forbidden for Israel kings to do. This leads to the installation of pagan worship in the land. Whereas Jeroboam's sins, like I said, was a violation of the second commandment, Ahab ups the ante by breaking the first commandment as well. He sets another god in front of Yahweh. And then the structure continues. The example we're given of Ahab doing more to provoke the Lord to anger than the other kings, was that in his day, Jericho is rebuilt. We're told Hael rebuilds Jericho, most likely at the commissioning of the king. Text records Hael laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and it set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segu. This is a fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy, the Lord's promise, back in Joshua Chapter 4, verse 9. Joshua and the children of Israel uh, lay waste to Jericho. The walls come tumbling down. Joshua pours salt over the place and, and curses it. May no one ever rebuild the city again. At the cost of your firstborn, you're going to lay the foundations. At the cost of your youngest, you will set up its gates. Lo and behold, the word of the Lord is fulfilled. 
Hael and Ahab are literally sacrificing their kids, their children, for military strategy, for convenience, for power, for prestige, whatever it might be that caused them to rebuild Jericho, it was worth it. It was worth more than their own children. You see that in our day and age. We are literally sacrificing kids in the womb for convenience, for a career. Because of choice. Because of our autonomy. It is my body, it is my choice. We deceive ourselves. For the sake of keeping up with the times, we are sacrificing our children, allowing them to be entertained by drag queens at a library story hour. We are allowing them to be entertained by cartoons teaching them that it is all right for a man and a man to get married, for a woman and a woman to get married. And for the sake of even Second Amendment, we put off discussions of safe gun control, sacrificing our kids and our neighbors all over this country. It is no wonder the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, again as we read, calls our human condition lovers of self, lovers of money, haters of God, inventors of evil, slanderous, murderous, rage that lacks self-control, haughtiness, and oh yeah, we are disobedient to parents and authorities. The judgment falls around us all over the place. Are we hearing the call to repentance? Wars and rumors of wars. Viruses, pandemics taking out a number of our population. Violence and hatred in our neighborhood, the breakdown of the family, the confusion of the individual identity, the intensifying of natural disasters, all these things the Old Testament prophets would have known were signs of judgment. Church, do we hear the call to repentance in our own day? This is the lens that we need when we read the Bible, when we read the newspaper, when we read social media, when we read of the events happening to ourselves, to our families, to our neighborhoods, all over the world. This is why choosing the correct lens is crucial. Because in Ahab's day, a mere pragmatic or economic or social or humanist lens would look at the rain of this king and by and large give it a passing grade. This leads to making light of sin. This leads to adding more and more, uh, provoking the Lord more and more to anger. And when ills befall society, that same lens will look for remedies in keeping with itself. We need more education. We need more laws. We need more medication, more psychology, more psychiatry, less religion. 
The Word of God filters through this data and denounces our wickedness, pointing us to what we really need to root out, the sinfulness in our hearts, both individually and corporately. We need a biblical lens because the improper lens will cause us to misinterpret and misdiagnose these signs and symptoms. And then we are more prone to a wrong prescription being administered. And that comes with deadly consequences as well. An improper lens will also cause us to miss the hope and the grace in this passage. It's pretty heavy on the surface reading of Ahab, but there is plenty of grace and hope here. It may not seem like a lot. It may go counterintuitive to our understanding of what hope and grace is, but it is here. It is a seed buried at the end of our passage. Small, seemingly insignificant, but it is there. To paraphrase one philosopher poet, if you have a seed, be prepared to expect wonders. And so we read, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua. And also, now Elijah said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Did you notice the seeds there? First, the word Lord there is in all capital letters. Most Bibles, most English translations have that. You may know that this is the publisher's signal for us that the word in the Hebrew there, being translated as Lord, is God's covenant name. Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the wonder that we can expect from this seed. That even after the summation of Ahab's report card, in the midst of a curse for rebuilding Jericho, God's covenant name, full of promise and action, is invoked by the author here. Israel is not cast off for good. God has sworn a promise by himself, and he will not change his mind. He promised Adam and Eve a snake crusher. He will not change his mind. He promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars, and he will not change his mind. He promised Moses that a prophet like himself would arise one day. He will not change his mind. He promised Joshua eternal rest. He promised David an eternal throne, and He promised His own beloved Son an eternal spotless bride, and He will not change His mind. So expect wonders from this seed, this invoking of God's covenant name. Secondly, Yahweh, our covenant-keeping and acting God, has spoken as the Lord spoke. He has spoken a word that comes to us. Now, it may not always be a word we necessarily want to hear, but it certainly is the word that we need to hear. 
And what was the word spoken to Ahab here? There will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Judgment comes upon Ahab in his sin. This judgment is not designed to be a buzzkill or a party crasher or anything. It is designed to cause the king to repent of his wicked ways and follow in the ways of righteousness after this covenant-keeping God. So expect wonders at the hard words from God. These words of judgment that are designed not to leave you in your sin. Don't be, as Paul warns against, someone with itching ears, only desiring to hear teachers that suit your fancy. It does you no good to hear peace, peace, when there is no peace. When there is hostility between God and mankind. Just like it does the patient no good to avoid the doctor who's going to tell them about chemotherapy and cancer. It does you no good to avoid that truth. But also don't seek out the hard words of Scripture for the sake of the hard words. There are many so-called preachers out there who love to point out what's wrong with culture, what's wrong with society, what's wrong with the church as well. They love to call down condemnation and fire and brimstone on people and then call it a day. There's no wonder in that. There's no gospel. There's no hope. There's no grace if you leave it at simply the judgment of God. Certainly, God comes with the law and this condemns us in our sins, but He never stops there. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. There is healing in the wings of the Son of Righteousness. Yes, there is condemnation for sin. Yes, there is judgment. Yes, there is fire and there is brimstone. But the wonder of it all is that this falls on Jesus Christ. For the one who believes in Him, the holy wrath of God, the wages of sin being death, the suffering of hell, of God's displeasure, fell upon His one and only Son. If you have even the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can expect wonders at that hard word from God. That He would pass over your sins and punish His sinless Son in your place. Don't get comfortable with that reality. Thirdly, we can expect wonders from this hard word that comes to us, especially in the darkest of times. Ahab is crowned the worst king in the northern kingdom, and he's given the most attention here in this portion of Scripture. This isn't done gratuitously. We are not meant to revel in the king's sins, neither are we to do so in the sins of others in our own day. Uh, TV has a habit of, of doing that, um, and we have a habit for falling for that. Rather, we are told of, of all of Ahab's faults and his sins and his failings in order to set up a backdrop for the glory of God. The 
glory of God will shine victoriously as my, uh, one of my seminary professors would like to say, the gospel always looks brightest against the darkest of backdrops. And what could be darker than God's people here, His covenant people, redeemed from bondage and slavery, turning their backs collectively on their gracious God, serving an idol that is no God. What could be darker than the formless void in Genesis 1 and the creative energies of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters? The Word of God speaking life into existence. Let there be where there once was not. What could be darker than the cosmic treason of our first parents in God's paradise garden? And the undeserved promise that God's word speaks to our first parents and their sinful progeny. What could be darker than the good word of redemption in the land of Egypt? Said that backwards. What could be darker than the enslavement of the Hebrews in the land of Egypt? And the good word that speaks freedom from slavery to them, even though they desired on more than one occasion to return to chains. What's darker than Babylon? The gospel comes there speaking words of eternal life, of restoration, of rest and peace through Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and the other prophets. And then that first Christmas night, on the darkest of nights, a centuries-long silence of God's word from the Old Testament to the New And amidst the slaughter of babies in Bethlehem, the gospel spoke a word into that darkness. The light of Christ has come. The darkness could not then, nor will it ever, overcome that light. And even when Christ lay flat on his back in the tomb, breathless, lifeless, without heartbeat or pulse. And the darkness of that day fled on Sunday morning when Christ burst forth from the grave, breaking breaking the seal of the tomb. Death submits to the author of life. Expect wonders from this light. Even when our eyes cannot see through the night, the light of Christ is a blazing one and it has promised to come and He will not change His mind. We dwell in an age of Ahab. And as a side note, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to compare or allude to uh, this Administration or any previous president's administration and trying to liken them to, a, to, to Ahab here. I'm speaking about the spirit of our age, the culture in which we live in. We see how it has affected our schools, our entertainment, our public policies. And that spirit that was at work in Ahab's day has infiltrated the church even. And has done so with disastrous results. 
But thanks be to God that even in our darkest hour, in our greatest need, the Word of God, hard as it may be at times, comes to us with warnings and judgment and also grace and hope because it points us to Christ, the scapegoat, the Lamb of God who shed His blood for the remission of sins, to wash us clean from any and all unrighteousness. Whether you have partaken of Pride Month now or in the past, whether you are guilty of murder in the heart or in the act, whether you have worshipped at the altar of Baal in any form, Christ, the author of life, has given us of Himself by taking on those sins, all of our sins, in our place. So I offer you this lens and this seed. Take them both by faith and expect the light of Christ to shine forth. He will not leave us nor forsake us. He will not change his mind.